1: Hello and welcome to the Blank Podcast, the podcast where we talk to well known guests about their difficult moments in life. Uh, I'm Giles Pay Phillips and with me is Jim Daly.
2: Hello. Hello. We've been away for a bit. We have. And we're back. And I'd forgotten how forgot to do the intro. <laughs> I, was about to say, I, thought sounded, I thought maybe you were trying a new one for, no. for this. Uh, no, this, I just forgot. Know. Well, it, it worked. It
1: worked. Had a it blank moment. Good. So on brand
2: moment, right. There we go. You can't get a more on brand start to a mm. podcast ever. Um, but anyway, how are you, how are you feeling after our, uh, after our mini break?
1: Oh, good. Yeah. Very refreshed, refreshed. Mm. Yeah.
2: Well, we hope our listeners have enjoyed the episodes we've put out. In the meantime, obviously, we still put out a couple of retro episodes, so we hope you enjoyed those. But we are back with regular episodes uh, now this week, uh, and our guest this week will come to in a minute.
1: Patrick Foster.
2: Oh, what a guy! What this is amazing, a amazing, amazing episode.
1: Yeah. yeah, amazing story. Uh, Patrick, who was a uh, professional cricketer for a few years in his in his I guess late teens, um, early twenties, and then. Yeah. Um, kind of uh, lost his contract with North Ants and then kind of his life spiralled into, you know, a, a gambling addiction which lasted with him for, for many, many years. And, uh, yeah, he's written an amazing book called Might Bite, uh, all about these experiences he had. And it's just, it's a, honestly, it's an unbelievable story. Um, and uh, he was very honest with us and candid about some of the really difficult, dark moments that he went through.
2: Yeah, absolutely. but um, I think kind of... you. you for the work he does now, raising awareness of sort of gambling addiction, you kind of have to be Unfortunately, So he has to bury into those blank moments and those dark moments a lot probably in his professional life now. So I'm sure it's probably not easy to do so. So I really appreciate um, him doing that. And I think it's probably... A couple of firsts, really, for us. First cricketer, I think, we've had on, on the on the pod. And my lack of knowledge of cricket becomes apparent very early on. Yes, it was
1: quite amusing. Yeah, seeing you sort of scrabbling around for <laughs> the words, the technical words. At one words. point,
2: I felt like I was slacking off cricket. To yeah. I didn't mean oh, to. Oh, so is that first-class cricket. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, God. Um, he was very gracious about it, thankfully. Yeah. Um, and also, I think, first story of gambling addiction, I think, we've had on the pod i think i apologize if i got that wrong to any previous guests so um but it's a very important it's a very important story and um yeah it's a very it's a very raw and honest one Mm. this week. but i really appreciate patrick coming on the link to his book is in the description now in the show notes if you uh if you want to buy that massively recommend that um as well um so yeah before we get into the episode shall we do our, our our regular Reading out of a tweet slash review
1: slash just a nice thing about us. Yeah, we've we've been delving the depths of the internet for reviews because because <laughs> we've run out. We've run out basically. So <laughs> if you if you like the podcast, I mean, there's thousands of people listen every week. Please yeah. send us a message. We haven't yeah. been able to read out thousands of messages, so we'd love yeah. to hear from you. Quite. I mean, and you can do that in various ways. We're on Twitter,
2: Facebook, Instagram. The handle for those is at blank pod. So all there's you know Apple Podcasts, um, iTunes. I found one called podparadise.com. Wherever you listen to podcasts or or get them from, please do drop us a little review, a five-star rating, um, because it really helps other people find it. And it's just nice. yeah. It's a nice little confidence booster for us, Charles, isn't it? Just to read these nice things. It's never bad to say nice things
1: about people. No, we're desperate for validation. (laughs) Uh, I mean, if you know us and you see us in the street and you listen to the podcast, just shout it out.
2: Quite. Exactly. You know. Well, I get that at Palace, because I do another podcast, Crystal Palace podcast. I get that at quite a lot of Palace. It's really nice, actually. People yeah. sort of come up and say, oh, man, I love the pod. And that is, honestly, it's, it, it's never not nice to hear that. So, to any Palace fans listening, uh, please do do that more often, because it's lovely. I appreciate it. No, well, the only really time nice it's
1: happened to it. me is when um, I was walking past a, a van in town, and um, I was with Sonny, and he stopped me, and he said, Daddy, it's, it's you on the radio. And I was like... <laughs> Can't be! I'm, I'm walking beside you, and uh, we turned back, and it was yeah, someone listening to the podcast. So wow. that was, that was nice. And you popped your head in the other side of the window and said, "You have got me in surround sound now, mate." <laughs> they immediately turned it off and drove away at high speed. No, it was very nice, and it That's was yeah, nice. yeah. So that was a nice bit of thing. So yes, we are we are desperate for validation, and um, <laughs> so please let us know how much you love the podcast. All I
2: would say as well, you know, it is never. It's never not nice to say nice things about people. So whatever pods you listen to, you know, make sure, because I'm sure people listen to more than one pod, make sure you send a message to all the pods that you listen to. Or if there's people in your life you think are doing nice things that you enjoy, whether they're an artist or something or or, or whatever, drop them a little message now and say, mate, I love what you're doing. Because honestly, that goes a long
1: way. Oh, Um, encouragement, encouragement. If you just give a few words of encouragement, and I'm not over-exaggerating this, it can literally change someone's life. So please do, you know, whatever someone's doing, encourage them. It can change, it can 100% change that person's day,
2: especially creative people, because we get in our heads a lot. Literally, one quick message from someone saying, I love that video you did or whatever. love that episode. Honestly, it can change your day. So mm. please, and in fact, I'm going to do that after this episode. I'm going gonna... I'm to message you, Giles. I'll just say it now. love what you do.
1: Oh, I love what you do too, Jim. There we go. We've go done off. it. We're so sycophantic.
2: Anyway, let's read this. Crack on the episode. Let's read that. So this is on podparadise.com from the Harleen Quinzel. Hey. Great name. Harleen um all other podcasts i've listened to are from the usa this is from the uk interesting interviews they are kind to guests and ask great questions i'm a
1: sucker for the english accent they could just read the dictionary and i'd be hooked well i think we were saying unfair that that will probably be become a podcast <laughs> yeah with someone <laughs> yeah. really erudite reading it you know like stephen yeah, fry or, exactly yeah or ian mckellen Oh, oh Olivia, I'd Olivia Coleman. To that. Olivia <gasps> Coleman. Doing. Olivia
2: Coleman reading the dictionary. Oh, I'd be uh, well up
1: for it. I'd listen to that. Yeah.
2: <laughs> well, we've got to pitch this to someone. Quick, we have got to pitch this to all <laughs> you yeah. So we, can, we Audi- can, like, Audible, 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 or Audible. Yeah. <laughs> Any other or, or other platforms? Yeah, we them, are with yeah. Audible and they are yeah. they're amazing. Yeah. So So um, only them. Um, right, let's crack on with this episode, shall we? Um, this is a fascinating story.
1: And a wonderfully lovely and open. Um we and should say also guests. before we yeah, that there are we do touch on um uh, suicide and, and obviously gambling yes. addiction and we and at yes. the end of the podcast there are um we talked to Patrick about the sorts of uh, organizations you can reach out to. Yeah. So important to listen to those bits at the end as well there. So just signposting signpost those bits yeah. for you. So yeah, just to, to let people know if you're um listening today that, that those things come up. Thank you. Thank you for that trigger warning. Then, because
2: I was about to do it without that, but I really appreciate you doing that. Um so yes, there are those themes do come up in, in this episode. Um so do be aware of that. But right, this is the fantastic, the brilliant. Patrick Foster on the Blank Podcast. <laughs>
1: So, Patrick, I'd like to start, if I may, talking about... your upbringing, obviously you you were born in Nairobi, am I right in saying that, and you were there till six six or seven years of age?
3: Yeah, that's right. You probably wouldn't believe it looking at me, but yeah, spent, <laughs> spent the first six years of, of life uh, in Kenya. Um, parents were teaching over there and spent a, my first year at school there, um, and it was amazing. I don't remember as much of it as, as I would have liked to, but um, yeah, it was an amazing place to to grow up and when I go back now my brother's actually living back out there it's um, a special place to visit.
2: I was going to say yeah have you got to go back much and has it going did going back stir up any memories?
3: Yeah, it does. Um, We go back sort of every other year, probably as a family. My parents maybe a little bit more because they're they're more closely connected. And with my brother out there, it gives us a good excuse um, Mm. to go on safari or or to the beach. And it is an incredible country. Um, And I do remember bits when I when I go back, but maybe not as much as as I wish I did. Um, But yeah, it's it's if you've never visited it, it's it's someplace.
2: No, I have. I've never been to Africa. I'd love to go. I yeah, really love too, to go. Yeah. My brother went to Tanzania for. Um, randomly, we met well, this is a very random story. I was living, coaching football in America, and then I went traveling with my brother across America. I was coaching football in like the the Western states, like Idaho, Colorado, Utah, those kind of places. Then I went to California to meet my brother, who flew into L.A. I actually didn't realize forgot his flight number and that was a whole drama and I thought I'd lost him at the airport but thankfully it was all fine and while there I stayed with a friend of a friend who was a lady who'd set up a school in Tanzania and at that time she was looking for a photographer to go out and take photos and my brother was at uni doing photography so I said oh Seb could do that and asked him, and he was like, "Yeah, why not?" And so he ended up going out there for like a month and like taking photos of the school and, and living there. And, and he said it one of the best things he ever did. And I was incredibly jealous. I should have said me. Like I can't take the of him, but I, I, I can yeah. do. I've got a camera. To, yeah, I can, should have been me. Um, <laughs> but no, he said it was. Yeah, he said it was. It was. It was almost life changing being out there. And I think, I don't know. I, I wish. I. I hope I do one day get the opportunity because I just think it's. Um, everyone I've, I've heard that's either lived there or been there has said it's. Uh, yeah, it's a fantastic place.
3: Yeah, it really is. So, did uh, I know
1: you had a love of sport as a, as a child? So, did that start there? Were you into sport at quite an early age?
3: Yeah, I was. Um, dad, my dad is fanatical about sport. Played a lot himself, and and so I guess it was in my DNA. Um, but also brought up with it, and living in a school, you were surrounded by older kids, access to facilities, all that kind of thing. So, yeah, there was a, a kind of passion for sport, um, not necessarily cricket, but just all sports when I was when I was younger. Um, having a younger brother who also loved it as well um, meant that we spent most of, of my childhood playing sport, whether it was with both of, of them or, or, or other people. So, yeah, absolutely, it was a, a big passion of mine from a very young age
2: so okay so was it was it cricket or were you one of these annoying kids that was like good at every sport again Mm. like my brother
3: uh i think i was probably one of those annoying kids (laughs) um i was also quite big physically quite big which which always helps um i think particularly in sports like rugby which i played when i was younger but cricket was probably what I was best at but I never really I wasn't one of these people that only ever wanted to play cricket I didn't really care what sport it was I, I just wanted to be doing it um and then I guess it was when I was about 13 or 14 that it, it probably started I started to realize or people did that, that cricket was what I was best at
2: yeah because I always say with sportsmen don't they like was there a moment where you thought oh i'm actually really good like I'm better than everyone else at this or is that something that happens sort of slowly over time as you get older?
3: yeah, I think a combination of the two really, I think when I made the transition at thirteen into senior school, um I was sort of playing in the under fourteen age group, and I then got moved up into like an under eighteen age group, and I was able to cope, and I think that was the point where everyone went okay. Um, this guy's a bit different. Um, and also I had that kind of mindset. I, I only ever wanted to be a professional sportsman. I didn't really care what sport it was in. And, and when you put those two things together, um, I guess it gives you the best chance of, of succeeding.
2: Yeah. Again, my brother, I'm, oh, he's going to get hammering this episode. My brother Sebastian <laughs> was very good footballer at a young age. And same thing, would play about two or three years above his age group. And he'd do really well. And I was like the older brother who just like wasn't as good, but tried really hard. And um, I'd go to watch his games and people were like, oh my God, are you Seb's brother? I'm like, yeah, yeah. Oh, he's so good, isn't he? And I'd be like, yeah, well, I mean, still wets the bed, but you know, yeah, I guess he's good at football. <laughs> Which is so annoying. But he just had that, I don't know, I just, with some kids, they just have that knack, I guess, or they just, that aptitude and they're just, or I guess it's natural talent, I guess, as well on some level.
3: Yeah I think so I think as I said it's a, a combination of the two I think um you got to have both um and I I guess I was very talented as a, a sort of youngster in my teens and and then other people started to to catch up and uh, I think that's what, obviously an, an interesting moment I'm sure we'll touch on that but um yeah it was it was a combination of of some natural talent and also a real kind of desire um to to want to be the best and and having an inherently very competitive nature. Yeah. And was the was your school team
1: good? Was was there a high quality of players there?
3: Yeah, I mean I was very fortunate in in education um where I went to school and I was surrounded by other people that were are very good um fantastic coaches amazing facilities you put all those things together and it, it definitely gives you the best chance um to kind of go on and achieve dreams and so i, I mean
2: I'm, I'm, a, I'm a football fan um i can't say i know much about cricket um apart from that, i do like to go up to the uh, it sounds like when i say hammer cricket I'm not, i don't intend to but we've got a cricket green up the corner from us it's very nice to go and watch the amateur guys play and my my um Wife's dad is not with us anymore. Used to have a a little one of those little fold away chairs. So I'll take my little fold away chair, go up and watch the cricket on like a Sunday afternoon, Saturday afternoon. It's really nice. I don't know what's (laughs) (laughs) happening. I I don't really know what's happening all the time. I get the basics of cricket, obviously, like where the ball goes and where you're supposed to stop it going and then hit it the other and whatever. But um, sometimes some of the scoring and stuff confuses me. But it's a a very enjoyable, relaxing sport to watch. That sounds really insulting, doesn't it? Like I'm hammering cricket, but it is. um, yeah, even though I'm not a fan, I guess I uh, I can appreciate watching a game. Well, I I'm
1: a, I am a big fan of cricket and actually I do like watching I do like watching amateur like just going down to the local green and watching. The the, that, the standards actually pretty pretty good in our local area and so you do oh, get they'll some beat pre- the
2: guys at my green
1: then, yeah. they're terrible. <laughs> There's some pretty good some pretty good players certainly some good bowlers. Um so yeah, no, I'm a big fan of cricket, and so I totally get it. And I think it's, it's a brilliant spectator sport for a start. It's, a, it's a, one of the be- best kind of things, you know, for a day out, whole day out. You know, the whole kind of um, atmosphere, especially the bigger games and stuff. i Sussex, is I'm Sussex, so you know I go to Hove when I can. But um, yeah, it's a brilliant, it's a brilliant sport. I think it's a really fantastic sport and i enjoyed playing as well it was one of the things i i was all right at at school um i wasn't particularly great at football though i love football um but cricket was something i was okay at um so yeah i i have a big passion for cricket i love it and i think i can understand why you know people uh, relish playing it
3: yeah it's um it's a funny game i mean you get people that that absolutely love it and live for it you get others that don't understand it whatsoever people think it's very boring um yeah, it's it's I think I mean I've I've always loved it. I've loved the kind of fact that it's physically and mentally challenging. Um I think it's a strange sport in the sense that you probably fail more times than you succeed and therefore mm, yeah. the success is even sweeter, but it it's it's brutal in the sense that it can be it can be really tough in those times where particularly if you're a batsman and you get out for none first ball and, and then you've got the rest of the day doing doing nothing. People are like, <laughs> yeah, I, just, yeah. I just don't get it. But, yeah, sometimes I'd rather watch them play, I think.
2: Yeah, I, I, for me, it's like the test matches and stuff where they play each other like five times in a week. I'm, I'm like, how are they still? This game has gone on for three months. How are they still playing this game? It just
1: that doesn't make sense to me. Well, I would say, Jim, that I actually, and this might be a controversial thing because I think because of the sport has been moved more and more to a sort of shorter game, I yeah. actually love test match cricket. I think actually it's my favourite. The sort of, yeah, you, know, you say, the more tactical side of it and, you know, that relentlessness, and, you know, like people are. Bowling like I don't know ten, twelve overs, a, a, you know more than that actually a day. Um, I think that's fantastic, and I love that. And you know, you, you see batsmen doing having huge innings and stuff like that, and that cat and mouse of it that that excites me more actually than this, the shorter games.
3: Yeah, it's. In, I think a lot of people are like that. Actually, I think now the shorter formats have come in. People, it's made people appreciate the longer formats. Yeah. Um, but people yeah. like my wife, who, who I mean like it because I'm into it so she's got no choice but she, she still can't quite comprehend that I'm away all day and I come back and she says how did you get on and I said we drew um, she, she, yeah, exactly. she doesn't understand how that happens but um, yeah it's a strange old game
2: So it's interesting the idea of um, failing more times than you win. Do you think actually to be a good cricketer, and I guess it's probably the same with most high-level sports, but you actually have to get, really get comfortable with losing.
3: Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I think with cricket, probably more so than any other, um, mentally, it's it's exhausting and it's tough. Um, so you do, and and actually, uh, I'm sure we'll we'll talk about it. But one of the things that I wasn't very good at was was that, is dealing with with kind of failure and it definitely fed into some of the challenges that I faced later in life and particularly this kind of concept of when cricket didn't work out for me, which is all I ever wanted and, and thought I was going to do, when that didn't happen, I found that moment really difficult to deal with and and saw myself as a failure, felt like I'd let people down and actually... I look at it now, and, and I realize I achieved way more in in mm. that area than some people could ever dream of, but in my eyes, I felt like a failure, and i, I wasn 't good at it. I always kind of feared failure um, and One of the things that I talk about now and when I, when I speak to young people is to actually embrace failure making mistakes because that's how you learn and, and get better at things but i wasn't good at it at all um and i had kind of learned the hard way in, in my adult life
2: yeah i mean it comes off on the pod a lot charles isn't it that idea of sort of embracing failure but it's so hard because i think you get you get clouded i think by i guess your ambition and the journey and where you're going and it's like you know they say if you're like climbing a wall it's like don't look down um because that's the way to keep going but i think actually sometimes if you're it is quite good to look back at how far you've come. Sometimes, if you're trying to progress in a certain area, whether it's sport or, or creativity or entertainment or something, because you will invariably have come a lot farther than you think. Um, and I think I think that's a good way sometimes to maybe give yourself that little reminder, that little win. Yeah, I'm doing absolutely. well. At, I'm doing well at this.
3: Absolutely. I, I think sometimes for people, and I, I was probably an example of this, is actually when you have a little taste of it. And then it gets taken away. That's almost harder than never having the taste or getting close whatsoever because you actually yeah. know what it's like. But, yeah, yeah, you're absolutely right. Going
1: on from that a little bit, because I know you went to Durham. I know Durham very well. It's a beautiful part of the country. Yeah, my, it is. My, um, my grandmother and my dad were from Crook, um, which is a beautiful little um Place in Durham, and we used to go spend summers there. And it's a one; it is a really one. And I, and I keep meaning to go back, because I haven't been back since I was tiny. So I, I keep meaning to go back. But it's a lovely part of the world. But yeah, so you went to uni there, correct? And then obviously you started playing for for the county cricket club. Yeah. So, so the time right now.
3: Yeah, yeah. So I mean, it was it was a slightly unusual situation because I was actually signed by Northamptonshire, which was my county well. and, and the school that where the school was that I went to, which is how I kind of ended up there and going through their academy. Um, and certain universities in the country had what they call centre of excellences. So you could go to university, continue your contract wherever you were playing, play for the university, do your studies. Um, and there were plenty of other people in similar situations from all over the country. So the standard up is very good. So I was at Northamptonshire, but playing for Durham University. Um And training as if I was a kind of professional athlete alongside my studies wasn 't always totally straightforward, um, yeah. living a student lifestyle and doing that and and obviously I more than most people found that difficult, but a lot of people have done it incredibly successfully um, but yeah it was that was kind of the situation for my first year at university until i got I got released at the at the end of my first year um, by the county.
2: Right, OK, because yeah, I, I, again, I, I sort of know the academy system in football and I guess and the sort of pathway into, I guess, first team football, but um, I'm not so aware of it in cricket. So essentially you were sort of in an, I guess, in an academy or sort of reserve level by proxy to your county, if that makes sense.
3: Yeah, that, that's kind of it. Obviously cricket being different because you don't play all year round, you don't play in the winter, so it allows you that time to, to go away and uh, continue kind of studies and education and then in the summer... I would spend the first two months of of the summer at Durham uh, playing for the university if I needed to be to be if I was called back by the county, I would have done and then obviously, as soon as university season uh, exams etc finished i 'd go back to Northamptonshire and play full time there. Um, obviously, it meant that I was being paid by the county whilst at university, um, and they had kind of final say over everything um because i was contracted to them but yeah it's a very different system to to other sports and now actually what you're seeing is there's less of that mainly mainly now young guys they sort of get signed at a, a young age and and then are, are kind of looked after by the club they don't go off to university um so yeah that's that's the way it works
2: okay and that was first class again i'm sounding like such a novice here aren't i that was first class cricket which which again i'm not aware of that is that like like top flight football basically. It's like
1: county cricket, yeah. So right.
3: Yeah, exactly that. And again, whilst I was there, it was a bit different because there were six universities that qualified for first class status. So we would play against the counties, although we were a university, we'd play against the counties. It wasn't in the kind of league, it was almost in sort of pre season games, but they counted as as first class games. Um so yeah it gave you an opportunity to to kind of put yourself against the best players in the in the country sometimes in the world it was an amazing experience for for students again it's it because there's so much cricket it's changed a bit now it doesn't exist as it used to but it was certainly a kind of shop window if you like for for young people to then right. get signed by professional counties or taken on if they they did really well or showed some potential
2: Right, okay. Thanks for explaining that. So, so it sounds a bit like sort of the, the university system in America, maybe with the, yeah, their yeah. American sports. Exactly.
3: God, thank
1: you. I've learned a lot. I've learned a lot in the first 20 minutes of this book. <laughs> so thank you. Going back to the, what you said about um, having your contract um, cancelled, w- were you aware that something like that might happen to you? I mean, I, I believe you had some injury issues as well, did you, around that time?
3: Yeah, I mean, in my, in my heart of hearts, Um, I always knew I was one of the guys that was kind of had to do everything I could to be where I was. Um, And there were lots of other people that were probably much more talented than me naturally. Um, And I had to work hard to, to kind of stay where I was. And I did that for a long time. And then, of course, other things got in the way. Um, one of the the kind of catalysts for for my gambling problems was was injury, which is often a a common denominator with, Mm -hmm. with athletes. It would be very easy for me to sit here and say the reason I didn't make it as a professional sportsman was because I got injured, started gambling heavily, and then lost my contract. Blame it on those things. It wasn't. It was because I wasn't good enough. But actually those things didn't help um and i know now i had to to kind of be fully committed and and i wasn't and i think that's probably the biggest regret that i have is because i i might not have gone on and achieved anything in the sport but i certainly could have given myself a better opportunity um so yeah it was it was a it was an interesting time and i didn't handle it as as well as i could have done or should have done
2: but you, so how old are you at this point? So early 20s? Quite yeah, young. so
3: between, yeah, 19, 20 um, at this point. Uh, so I'd had a year out in between school and, and university playing full time and, and then went to university at 19. So I'd probably just turned 20 when I got released.
2: So that's a very, I mean, that's a kind of confusing time anyway as a, as a, 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 as a normal adult slash member of society. When you're adding on top of that the pressure of doing, you know, high-level sport injuries and then things that come along with it there's a lot to handle at a young age
3: yeah I, yeah I realize that now and, and I think one of the things that again I, I look back on and, and think is you never really know how you're going to deal with moments like that in your life and of course when I was younger I, I was kind of very confident and I thought you know what if that ever happens to me I'll just use it to motivate myself I'll bounce back and I didn't um, I found it really tough and I struggled um but actually at age 20 i still had a lot of time ahead of me and and now and hindsight's a wonderful thing but i wish yeah. i'd gone well actually do you know what that's probably given me the kick up the backside that i needed we'll go again i've got plenty of time on my hands but i didn't i responded in a way that um obviously wasn't wasn't the best but you can't you can't help how you react and yeah. um i just wish I'd, I'd kind of done things differently um at that point,
1: so you obviously mentioned that you were injured. You know, you had that downtime from from injury, and that is sometimes a catalyst for people to start gambling heavily. Was that when you first started gambling, or had you been started? Had you started placing bets and things previous to that?
3: I'd I'd started in my first year at university. I I'd never placed a bet myself before I got to university. Before I was nineteen years old, it just wasn't something that. I'd been brought up with it wasn't something that my family did other than, as I talk about in the book, other than kind of Grand National day yeah. where Dad would go down the betting shop and we'd ceremoniously sit around the TV, yeah. pick a horse out of the paper. I'd watch it fall at the first hurdle or I'd think, "What's the point in <laughs> yeah, that?" And, exactly, yeah. uh, and that was all I knew about gambling and all I thought it was really. And then when you get to university, I, I met some mates who had been brought up with it, who were interested in it, and. I did it. My first bet was a, a winning bet, which I don't think helps, particularly as somebody who's incredibly competitive. And that kind of feeling it gave me, I think the strangest thing is, i probably f- spend the next 13 years trying to chase that feeling that you're never yeah. going to get again. Um, but it was certainly something that I did initially as a kind of form of entertainment. It was It was fun. I did it with my mates. Whilst there was an element of secrecy, it was affordable because I was getting paid to play cricket. So I had more money than most students. I had the time to do it. So it wasn't a problem. It became a problem when I started to do it more. I started to lie about it during that that period. I didn't kind of admit to people that I was struggling with with having not playing. And then, of course, when I got released, my relationship with it changed completely.
2: Yeah, I, I... Again, I go back to the age thing. It is a weird time, I think, when you sort of feel like a full-grown adult and you are in the eyes of the law and stuff. But I think you're still developing. Wasn't there a study that the male brain doesn't actually develop fully until like 26, 25 or something? So I think in a way you're still a man child. And I remember being at university and I got uh, my first sort of proper bank account, adult bank account, and I got my first credit adult credit card like student credit card kind of thing from hsbc and it felt like free money and i and i spent that really quickly and it was for me it was going to the the, the snooker hall with my mate mike and we'd play pool all day long didn't do any studying because the first year of my university course was basically just had to be there didn't have to turn up uni- to let just be there and you'll pass the first course <laughs> so it was yeah so it's a lot again a lot of free time I felt like i had this play money and, of course, that went very quickly. Um, but it's you don't – and it's first time away from home as well. So I'd gone from Kent to Southampton. So it wasn't that far, but it was far enough to feel like I was away from home. Um, whilst well, well simultaneously being close enough to go home if I needed to. Um, so it's just, it's just there's so much going on at that point. And, again, if you've gone from – I'm guessing what North North Hants to Durham. That's, that's that's a fair distance as well, isn't it? To be away from home. So there's so much going on there at a young age. You can see why people start to maybe have problems.
3: Yeah, and the and that kind of element of independence where mm. I I operated in environments that were very full on boarding school, then playing professional sport. There was always someone looking over my shoulder, telling me what to do, mm. eyes on me. And suddenly I got to university, and uh, as you say, you got free time, you got money, and you've got nobody telling you what to do. And that was kind of, for me, was, right, let's make the most of it. Um, and I think I was pretty good at, at kind of channeling channeling it in my first year when I still had cricket, and that was the kind of main focus. But as soon as that went away, it was certainly a case of, right, okay, I, I can now do what I want. And um, I really did. So what kind of level of
1: bets were you doing at that time? Were they quite low level or were you starting to put more and more bigger sort of stakes on?
3: Yeah, I think after after I'd finished playing cricket in my second and third year, I think the difference then with, with gambling was I still did it with my mates. I went into the shops. We kind of would put our football accumulators on. We'd play on the machines. But then what I'd do is I'd go again two or three times a day without anybody else, without telling anybody. Any money that I ever won from gambling, I historically might have done something with it, spent it on a night out, whatever it might have been, even saved some of it. Now, every penny that I was winning, I was kind of reinvesting in gambling. So if I went into the shop and I won £50 off a a horse race, then my next bet would be, That amount of money and and this became a kind of pattern so whilst I wasn't in debt or losing huge sums of money I certainly wasn't winning any money because every time I did it it just went back into gambling and any money that I had from cricket I wasn't getting paid huge sums of money for obvious reasons because of my age Um, but any money that I did have from cricket I gambled away whilst at university. So I left university with, with the normal kind of debts that students had, but I had nothing to show financially for my cricket career. Cause it had gone on, on gambling.
2: And I guess like when they talk about people having a healthy relationship with gambling, it is that moment where you win 50 quid on the horses and go like, Oh, okay, cool. Oh, well, bye. And then walk out the shop and you've got your 50 quid to go and spend on lunch. That's a very expensive lunch or, or, or whatever you want to <laughs> spend it on. Um, but, I guess some people have that intuition, and maybe some don 't or or is it a case of that some maybe do, but then a big life trauma, like you know for example, getting released by your your cricket county
3: changes people 's mindset? Yeah, I think exactly that we will say to people now if if you 're gambling and you, you get that feeling of winning, and you do something with it. You you might keep a bit in your account, but actually you take it out. Then that, as you say, is a is a kind of healthy relationship. When it's just constantly about what what can be my next bet, how can I win that money back? Chasing wins and chasing losses is a sure sign that you're probably losing control um, quite quickly so yeah and then and then using it as a form of kind of escapism because for me that's what was really interesting and I didn't realize it at the time but I obviously do now is I was really struggling with with everything that was going on and coming to terms with things when I was gambling I only thought about gambling I didn't have any other worries in the world so it felt like a kind of safe place but it was actually the most dangerous place i could be and and of course once it starts to it's like any addictive substance and or behavior when it starts to sort of feel medicinal you start to rely on it and and that was very definitely what i did and and my kind of coping although it was very unhealthy my coping mechanism for dealing with with my emotional struggles yeah
1: There's quite a few things I wanted to unpack there actually. Uh, firstly was like the parallels actually between what you said earlier about cricket being a lot of failure and then doing gambling, which essentially is generally a lot of failure. You might get the odd win. So there's those parallels, which I thought were interesting, but also I was just thinking about that aftercare that was not in place for you, but mm. from the cricket club. Um, and it's something that's, within sport at the moment, I think there's, I know football, some football clubs are starting to change that a little bit. I don't know what it's like in cricket, but for players that are released or are not going to make it to that level, guiding them onto a path where they can find something else to do, or, you know, another career path or whatever it might be, clearly wasn't in place when you were there. You're kind of just left to kind of feel that, what you, at that sense you were feeling as failure or that loss as well. that dream Um, and you had no you had like I say no aftercare no one there to support you through that
3: Yeah, it's it's a brilliant point and obviously something that professional sports organizations whether it's the clubs themselves or, or player bodies are now putting a huge amount of focus on because when you transition out of professional sport it's it's so tough whether you've played a very small amount like I did or whether you've played 150 times for your country the point where you make that transition is really difficult and and you're vulnerable for lots of different reasons to lots of different things historically there was very little support it was will support you and then the day you're released or or you retire you go off and fend for yourself but actually what they're doing now is they're focusing as much on caring for players as they make that transition as when they're actually playing, which is, which is so good. Wow. Um, and I'm lucky enough to now work with a lot of these player bodies and what, what they do for people as they transition out of the game is, is so good. Um, but I was just unfortunate because when I was younger, that, that just yeah. didn't exist. Um, and as, as you said, as a 20 year old guy, that's, that's difficult. Um, and I did need someone to hold my hand um, and I didn't have that. And, and having that kind of support is, is really important, whether it's just finding what you're going to do instead, or it's actually helping you deal with the kind of fallout. It, it's really, really important.
2: Yeah, hundred percent. And I guess because you're, you're trying to replace, you know, you're saying about that competitive nature. And I think anyone that reaches a high level of sport professionally has a real competitive streak in them. So I guess you're trying to replace that literal time, that literal time that you spent training and playing, but also I guess that kind of that 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 competitive mental side of things. That I guess is almost like um competitive energy in you that that has to go somewhere as well, which you can't do on the cricket pitch.
3: Yeah, I always say gambling's like a drug for competitive people because essentially what it's about is winning and losing. Uh, and it gives you that on tap. So for me, uh, as somebody who's very competitive, I, I essentially don't stop doing something until I win. And yeah. when you gamble, you lose a lot. So I wouldn't yeah. stop when I was losing. And then when I win, I thought, well, okay, I'll, I'll stop then. But I actually you love that feeling, so you try and replicate it. And you just go through that process all the time. And it, it's really interesting what you said about we, we talk about kind of buzz replication. Mm. Nothing could ever replace the feeling whether you're playing professional football and you score in front of 30,000 people or in cricket you take a wicket or hit a six nothing can ever replace that that feeling that's why you do it yeah. gambling was the closest thing I ever found and, and that's why it kind of gave me that that kind of comfort that I needed um, and that's why it's so important that people understand if you are that way inclined if that's your nature if if that's what you do there and you have a relationship with gambling you've got to be really careful yeah
1: so from obviously you you carried on doing your degree and and then you am i right you moved into the you know working in the city so you're doing like more business stuff you had did you have peers that were doing the same sort of thing and you sort of moved into doing similar things to what
3: yeah exactly
1: around you were doing
3: yeah i mean i made a few mistakes in my life but one of the things that that i definitely did which probably wasn't right at the time is i never knew what i wanted to do and i followed the crowd i went into london um on paper i had a pretty enviable cv so i managed to get a job in insurance broking although i didn't know the first thing about it um (laughs) and i worked in in finance um, lived in southwest London. Most of my mates were doing similar jobs. And now life became about money. Um, and I became motivated, motivated by money. That's what became important was the be all and end all. Couple that with a pretty toxic gambling habit, which is about money. And it was kind of a match made in, in hell, um, is the way I describe it. Because now all I wanted to do is. Have as much money as I possibly could, and I kind of saw that time as right. I'm going to try and make as much money as I can, and then get out and do something that I want to or more purposeful. Um, and gambling would add to that, um, and of course it did the opposite. But it was a very sort of strange time, um, and I was getting paid a very healthy salary as a graduate. Of course, that was a recipe for disaster as well, and yeah. and freedom um and an environment that was all about kind of fast cars big houses Mm. um and and where gambling was was kind of ingrained in the culture as well everybody did it so there was no getting away from it
2: so because I guess as well if you're not doing a job that you feel sort of fulfilled by that you're just sort of doing it because you feel like it's gonna make me money and sort of get get me nice stuff that again that buzz you're not getting a healthy buzz from doing something you feel like you know i am in loving this or i'm helping people or whatever so again you're then replacing that buzz with the gambling or or, or unhealthier ways to do that surrounded by an environment as well where everyone's doing it is that is that when the gambling started to get worse
3: yeah absolutely and and that's when i started to to kind of do it all day um in and around work. I started to do it online, which meant I could do it any time, any place. Um, living in London, there were betting shops on every corner. There were casinos that I could go to all night. So it was just there on tap. Um, and then, of course, in, in 2010, I had, a, I had a huge win. I won a life-changing sum of money one night. And that was the point that Gambling went from being a bad habit and a problem to becoming something very, very serious. And it completely changed my relationship with it. And, and that was kind of the... There were several turning points, but that was, that was the big one.
2: Because you hear about people saying that they're professional gamblers. People are... There's always a story of someone down the pub, oh, yeah, my mate Steve is a professional gambler. <laughs> it's, uh, I'm sure it's bullshit. But, but also, that can't... <laughs> that, that can't that just sounds so risky unhealthy it sounds terrible
3: yeah i think i think every gambling have, every gambling addict goes through a phase where they think they can be a professional gambler right. because usually at some point you you win and therefore you win Like I did a a huge sum of money. I won £35,000 and and I was thinking, right, I can can make a living out of this. But of course, I I now know that no amount of money was ever enough. I think where some people do differ, um, there are such things as professional gamblers. I think there's a very fine line between the two. But I think they're the people that only ever bet on one thing they have one area of expertise whether it's playing poker or whether it's knowing something and they don't really err away from that but also they have the self-control if you like that if they place a large bet and it doesn't win they don't try and immediately win it back on something that they know nothing about so it's that's kind of the big um point of differentiation and and i after i won that huge sum of money i thought right i can make millions from this and of course i tried i lost it in five weeks and uh and and then you're trying to win it back and you're dealing with feeling stupid embarrassed guilty ashamed all those other emotions that come along and then that then you're just going in a downward direction that that never moves upward so at that time what what were you betting on
1: i know you said sort of like you know you weren't obviously Aligning yourself to one particular area to bet on. Were you betting on, like you know, horse racing and the dogs and um, football matches? What 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 kind of things were you betting on?
3: Yeah, I mean, I think at that point I was actually sort of reasonably selective. Um, It's all relative, but I did have various things that. I kind of bet on, I bet a lot on horses, I got really interested in that, I bet a lot on football because I was interested in that, Um, I did a bit on the dogs, but it was mainly sports betting and mainly things that I actually sort of had some interest in. My biggest vice was roulette, I used to play on the fob team machines um, in the shops and then when I started gambling online I used to play a lot at night on online roulette, which is where I I probably lost the most money. Um, But it was certainly sort of reasonably selective. I think then when I won that amount of money and I moved all my gambling online that's when I started to bet on anything and everything. And it became a kind of 24-7, 365-day-a-year. Yeah. And it went from, well, I bet on the horses. Once the horses are finished, I bet on the football. Then once the football had finished, I'd find something else to bet on in the middle of the night that I knew absolutely nothing about. And, and of course, that's a sure sign that you've got a serious problem. But I just didn't recognise it at the time.
2: Yes, yeah, like Bolivian third division reserves. You're like, there I'm sure. I'm sure this team will win. Yeah, they're, yeah. They're not the
3: best name. You yeah, know, I've you're done in it a all. Yeah, Hungary, exactly. Hungarian handball is the one that I always uh, <laughs> really? always say is probably the most obscure thing. Um, I mean, I I bet on whether it's going to be a white Christmas or not. Um, anything and everything, but it's um, that's when it's scary. And I think, of course, the advent of online gambling, but also yeah. the fact now that you can you can bet on anything um, means that it's just it's accessible to to somebody the whole time gone are the days where the shop shut at nine o'clock and actually then you couldn't have a bet till the next day it's it's very different now
2: I was going to ask about that about that the on the online effect because I'm guessing if you're talking about 2010 and stuff is that when online started to become sort of more of a bigger thing online gambling or had it been around before that
3: it had been around before that but that's when it sort of It coincided with the kind of boom in it, but also things like betting in play, which didn't really used to exist. Um, And it, I mean, obviously, you used to put your bet on and you wait your 90 minutes and you find out the outcome. But then, of course, for me, someone like me, I could bet every 10, 15 seconds during a game on the next throw in on the next corner. Who was going to take the next wicket? What was the method of dismissal? So the frequency just existed, and I could do it sat at my desk on a phone on my computer. Nobody knew about it, so that was probably the biggest change for me and and I guess where we saw a real kind of heightened increase in in people that were having problems with it,
1: yeah, because I, I was going to say um I grew up with uh, gamblers, my dad was a a freak guy. And I would say he had an addiction to it as well. And my nan as well. She, I don't know, obviously was genetic maybe. Um, but uh, she was always betting on the dogs. And I remember I used to have to stand outside corals and they used to have the little coloured tassels in the in the door. And then now and again the wind would blow and you could sort of see in. But it was like kind of smoky and, hor- you know, like mm-hmm. this horrible kind of very um, intimidating place, a yeah. betting shop. And I think, you know, even now, like, I you know, I I can I can't imagine going inside a betting shop but I would feel too intimidated it would be a weird environment for me it Would take you back uh, but I think yeah it would certainly take me back yeah but I was just thinking like the the, the online thing obviously made it so much more accessible to you, you could do it in your own home you can do it wherever you like on the train wherever you wherever you are uh, and if you're not you know if you find going to a to a betting shop or a, an establishment like that intimidating or weird um or 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 the fact that you you know you might think actually I've got a problem with this going to an actual venue to do it makes that maybe exacerbates that feeling a little bit. Whereas if you're on your phone or whatever, which is, you know, we're addicted to these as much as we are to, um, to anything else, but I don't know. It makes it feel a bit more, I don't know, comforting.
3: Yeah. Um, and I think that's why we've seen, I mean, there's this kind of myth that it's a male only problem. Um, And actually, we've seen a a huge rise in in female problem gamblers. But historically, betting shops, as you just said brilliantly, casinos, very male-dominated, quite intimidating environments that some people just wouldn't want to go in. But when you can do it online, it it means you can do it any time, any place, and you don't have to encounter that, but also... Uh, i mean this concept of real money i never lost as much money in betting shops because generally i was betting in cash and i could see the value of that money it felt real as soon as i was doing it online uh makes me sound old but kind of monopoly money is is how i describe it in the book because suddenly that it just didn't feel like real money at all um and so I think that that's another reason why online gambling can be can be so dangerous for people.
2: Yeah, you're absolutely right. It doesn't feel like I still feel like that with my debit card. I go to Sainsbury's. <laughs> it doesn't feel like real money. And, it, and I think if you're someone that grew up before cards and before tap and swipe and all that kind of stuff, then. Yeah, it it definitely is a different relationship to money, I think, than sort of holding it in your hand. Although, of course, post-COVID, we're now all being trying to be encouraged to not hold money in our hands because it's a way of spreading disease and stuff. So everyone is being forced into sort of a cashless life, which I think probably does lend, its, lend itself to the idea of money online not feeling real. But I've got another question about sort of online stuff because, and I won't like name any betting companies, but there are some... Okay, more and more are trying to sort of almost become entertainment companies that offer a bet at the same time. And, and those worlds combined, I mean, there was one betting company that I think started offering bets on WWE, wrestling, which, of course, we know is scripted. So it, 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 it almost blurs that line between betting on something that you don't know the outcome to, to like betting as an entertainment form. And that, to me, feels an incredibly slippery slope.
3: Yeah absolutely and, and i think what's really interesting with the younger generation is the emergence of like esports and things like that so now they can bet on competitive computer gaming mm. which is what wow. they're, what they're kind of really interested in and, and i think that whole world is is going to be huge but it it really scares me and uh, i mean gaming is a whole separate issue in many ways but the convergence between the two is is really worrying because now a lot of the things that built into these online video games like loot boxes packs these sort of things that young people are buying from a really young age it's just normalizing that type of behavior and and in many ways they are just digital forms of of gambling and so there is it is really blurring the lines between all these things so there just needs to be a lot more awareness education regulation all, all these different things to to try and ensure that that people don't go down or fall down the path that I did
1: You talk about this in the book um, about that mo- like that that moment of clarity for you, I guess that moment where you knew that you had had a, a problem, and, and for all addicts, there's often that moment, isn't there, where you've sort of maybe got to the lowest moment. Can you are you happy to explain a bit about that that moment and and how that occurred and the, the fallout of that?
3: Yeah, um, I mean, I think a lot of addicts talk about a rock bottom and and having to reach that and hit that and I certainly hit mine in in 2018 there was always for me whilst I knew I had a problem I was just not prepared to admit it because I was so ashamed so scared of the potential consequences this kind of weird belief that i could gamble my way out of it and i think that's the irony of a gambling addiction is that no alcoholic has ever tried to drink themselves sober but as a gambling addict you think you can you can win your way out of it yeah um and i always saw that kind of glimmer of hope um financially and then in 2018 uh kind of all the things that i was doing that i shouldn't have been doing came to the surface, my biggest secret got found out and and I knew that I was going to lose my house, I knew that I was going to lose my job um, and potentially face pretty serious criminal conviction and at that point I thought there's no way out um, and of course then I should have reached out for help but me being me, thinking I could be a hero as usual, I tried to as I just said I tried to gamble my way out of it during the Cheltenham Festival in 2018 having borrowed a huge sum of money off somebody uh, and that was kind of my only solution it became a it became a matter of make or break life or death Mm. you either win the money back and these things don't happen or you lose the money and life can't go on because there is actually no way out as I saw it. And, and unfortunately, well, fortunately, I know now, but at the time, unfortunately, I didn't win that money. Um, and I did try to take my own life because, yeah, I just I just didn't think there was a, a way out. Um, I felt like I'd let too many people down. There wasn't a route back. And unfortunately just before um, doing the unthinkable and, and, throwing myself in front of a moving train. I I made the best decision I've ever made in my life, and that was to tell somebody. Yeah. People say to me all the time, do, do you think that means that you actually didn't want to do it? Um, possibly. Um, I'll never know the answer, but actually what it that moment did make me do finally is it made me think about other people, not just myself. Um, I realised that I had only... I'd been very selfish for a long time and I think that's what addiction does to you and, and how it consumes you. But I'd only ever thought about the impact it had on me. And I saw a moment of clarity there and I thought, well, if I do this, what impact is that going to have on other people, those around me, and what have they done to deserve that? Um, and so I reached out to, to my younger brother. Unfortunately for me... I don't think he realized the proximity or severity of the situation because I think if he had, he might have reacted in a very different way. But he essentially just told me not to do it. Um and said to said to me in, in the simplest terms, look, whatever it is, just just talk to me. Um yeah. and I'll try and help you. And and that's what I needed to hear and That was the moment for me that changed everything because as soon as I told, I'd found it so hard to tell anybody, but as soon as I told someone, their reaction was very different to what I thought it was going to be and and I realised that by coming clean that was the only way I was gonna move forward. I'd tried everything else and none of it had worked. The only thing I hadn't tried was telling someone and I finally did it and it allowed me to to kind of move forward. It doesn't didn't mean that the problem was solved and everything was okay. There was a hell of a long way back from there. But I could start moving in the right direction. And for me that was a kind of moment in of clarity in in the most kind of clouded circumstances you you could ever ever imagine Um, and obviously so glad that it it worked out that way because unfortunately there are plenty of people that it doesn't and and we need to stop that happening to anybody
2: well thank you for sharing that Patrick uh, because that's a very powerful story and I guess as well like you say there are probably so many feelings of shame embarrassment fear of how people might react that people don't reach out but i guess in that moment there's a reminder that, lo- that you are loved and whatever you've done and um, whatever's happened the people closest to you still want the best for you and they still love you and that wouldn't that won't change and i guess that's a powerful kind of thing to try and remember in that moment that if, if you do reach out people are still going to love you uh, and i guess maybe people pref- people feel sort of undeserving of that love potentially because of what they've done and, 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 and the things they've been through. But that love will be there. And I guess maybe that's a kind of a good springboard to then go through that change that needs to be changed.
3: Yeah, absolutely. I think in my head I'd, I'd played out so many times how yeah. individual people were going to react, what they were going to do. And until I actually did it, I didn't know what that was going to be. And it was so different to what I thought it was going to be, this kind of concept of people thinking I was an idiot, disowning me, all that. It it, it never happened. And if I'd known that was going to be the case, I'm convinced I would have reached out sooner. Um, we talk a lot about nowadays about stigma, and I think there is still a stigma attached to certain things. And I think gambling is one of those which was the motivation for writing a book because I say to people I think if I'd had a problem with drugs or alcohol I would have found it much easier to admit but because it was gambling I didn't want to but as I say I I think anybody who is in that situation and it might be because of gambling it might be because of another addictive substance or behavior it might be just because of of mental health actually until you until you tell someone you, you don't know what their reaction is going to be. And it's often very different. Um, and people, people do love you and, and people are willing to give you a second chance. Um, and there is always a way out. It's not always easy. Um, and there's never a quick fix, but there is always a way out.
1: Yeah. So what going, going on from there, what were those, those sort of first steps in your recovery? What, how did that look? What did that look like?
3: Yeah, I think the the biggest thing for me was I needed to connect to somebody who actually understood where I was and what I was going through. Um, I was in sort of obviously serious crisis, and and one of the things my parents did, who were kind of alerted to it immediately, was they reached out to to somebody that they were aware of, a um, lady called Mandy Saligari, who's a recovering addict herself, and ran this treatment facility on Harley Street and, and actually rang her and just said, look, this is a situation, what on earth do we do? And her first words or reaction was, let me speak to him because that will make a difference, and it did because it was the first person I'd spoke to in however long that actually understood exactly what I was going through. And, and that moment was like a light bulb in my head because I thought, whoa, okay, there are other people. I'm not the only person in the world who has done these things and feels this way and is in this situation. Um, And she said to me, look, this is what I do. This is who I am. Come in on Monday um, and just give me a day, give me a chance. Um, And I had no other option, really. Um, And I was desperate deep down for the help, and I did. I went there and, and I spent the next few weeks there. Um, and I think just being able to to shut myself off from the world and, and focus purely on what was driving my addiction, understand it, connect to those emotions, realize that this wasn't something that was going to be fixed overnight because I did want a quick fix, and and coming to terms with the fact I wasn't going to get one was was a big hurdle to overcome. But when I did it, it was it was huge. Um, but connecting to other people who were in that situation was was the turning point um, because I suddenly f- lost this feeling of being kind of totally isolated and alone. Um, and the first few days, weeks were so tough, but every day it got easier and it got better. And I thought, well, it couldn't get any worse, but I'm now moving in the right direction, so I've got to stick with this and, and the rest is history, as they say.
2: Yeah, I it's amazing that idea of connecting to people because we are by our nature sort of social beings and we want to and actually when you do start to isolate yourself it's unnatural we want to connect to people we want to be able to have those connections and things in common and all that kind of stuff and I, I can imagine it must feel incredibly lonely when you are you've got this secret you've got this sort of dirty secret that that that's just yours and But there are other people out there going through the same thing. There are people who have been through it and come out the other side. There are people maybe going through it at the same time who do understand. And even, I think even just knowing that fact is probably quite a helpful and comforting thing. You might feel alone, but you're not. And then maybe the next step is actually trying to reach those people.
3: Yeah, and and that concept of you don't believe that it's possible to go an hour without whatever it is that you're doing, let alone a day... And as soon as I realised that actually life was possible without gambling and actually then the next stage was realising that actually life's, for me, better without it, it was so rewarding and enlightening and, and that's why, for me, recovery is, is amazing because this was something that had consumed me in every way and, and I thought, well, there's no way I can go... A day without doing it, and every day I go without doing it is is better than the last so yeah. it's it's empowering, but when you 're in it it's it's really hard to to see the light but if you can um, and and if you make that kind of biggest and bravest step in admitting that you've got a problem, actually what you can achieve and, and, and what you can do in life is is amazing yeah
1: the book's amazing might buy it. Um, the Secret Life of a Gambling Addict uh, I was thinking it's a really impactful story and and the, the book is brilliant how, how was it for you going back and obviously retelling those stories, was it difficult or I mean you know I guess it was cathartic is a word we use quite a lot these days but um, it must have been challenging I guess at times going uh, back
3: over Those things. yeah it was um, I think you've hit the nail on the head it was cathartic I think one of the main reasons I wrote the book was a coping mechanism for lockdown. When I got when we got hit with lockdown, I thought, well, how on earth am I going to get through this like a lot of people? And I really need a purpose. And, and I wanted to achieve two things. One was to get fit again and lose a bit of weight. And the other was to, to write a book. And I kind of just poured my heart onto paper. Um, and it was emotionally draining, but it was so rewarding. And I think one of the best things for me was... I'd talked about my story, my life with gambling a lot, but there's only so much you can say, and there were certain things that I couldn't say. Yeah. Uh, and the only way I could get it down was, to be truly honest, was to write, um, and it allowed me to do that, and, and that's exactly what I did. There were times where it was really tough, sort of going through old messages, emails. I had to dig deep, and, uh, and a lot of it was... I was just so it brought back that kind of shame because I just can't believe that I did some of the things that I did and and behaved in the way I did. But at the same time, because of the process I've been through, I was able to understand that that's what my addiction had done to me. Um, so yeah, it was it was an amazing process, really. For it wasn't easy, but it was very rewarding. And and then um, obviously to now have it in print and and out there for the world to read is is something that i never thought would happen but i'm immensely sort of proud of it it doesn't Mm. it doesn't still doesn't really feel real and and sometimes i have to remind myself that it's that's my story it's my life um because when it's in something like a book it almost doesn't feel real but um yeah it's hopefully it will it will help people and and that was the the main motivation for it certainly
2: You should be proud of it. And I guess you can hold it as well. I think when you've got the tangible evidence of the thing you've done, I think that's a helpful reminder of sort of this this thing you've achieved. Um, But what was your relationship with cricket like during all this journey? Are you still playing or is it just behind you? Uh,
3: No, I'm still playing. So I I mean, I talk about in the book for a long time, I had a really difficult relationship with cricket because, A, I was playing for all the wrong reasons because it was financially driven, but also, Anger was an emotion I found very difficult to, for articul- to articulate for want of a better word, um, and cricket gave me a platform to kind of get angry in a in a kind of way that was acceptable. Yeah. Um. And people now look back and think, wow, it makes sense because when you played, you were sort of like a man possessed. You were you <laughs> yeah. were so angry and. I mean I've always been fiercely competitive but it kind of manifested itself in in a different way and so I I then when I sort of was in recovery I didn't play initially and and I've gone back to playing and and I love it I play with a smile on my face and do it for all the right reasons I'm not getting any better or uh any younger but I um I just enjoy it um and it it does Nothing will ever replace gambling, but it it's important for me because exercise, sport, it 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 replaces it in a certain way. It gives me that kind of competitive fix that that I need. So yeah, it's um I've I've re really found a love for it, um, both playing and watching it, which is so nice.
2: That's really really good to hear. And so that anger was that sort of like anger at yourself then during that period.
3: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I used to internalise anger i spent life sort of furious with myself couldn't believe what i was doing to other people but also to myself and and then as soon as I, i i never kind of showed any anger so it just kept sort of internalizing and and then as soon as i kind of played sport particularly cricket it was just this outlet where it would all come out and then i'd go through that process again um and now i understand that It's okay to get angry or or be angry. You've just got to find ways to kind of outlet or or channel it in in the right way or just sometimes articulate it. And actually, it's a very complicated emotion without getting too deep. And a lot of people find that really, really hard. Um, I just try not to get angry uh, as much as possible. But everybody does at at certain points. And it's, it's how you manage it, I think, that's important.
2: Yeah, completely agree. I think anger is, we could do a whole episode, Giles, I think, on anger, actually, because <laughs> it is, it is, it's both a sort of a, a symptom and a cause, I think, a lot of times, and it's come up with my counsellor a number of times that when I've been feeling weird about something, it's it sort of boiled down to an anger, or anger might be the first step that I'll take in vocalising it, so yeah, it's just, what you, what you said really rings true there, I think, and... Um, it's, yeah, we could do it. Yeah, we could really boil down into it, but we haven't really got time. But it's interesting you say that actually, because I think it's something that t- definitely resonates with me. I don't know about you, Charles. Does that, does that,
1: I don't get angry very often, I have to say. <laughs> um, I'm, maybe I'm like I'm so totally passive. <laughs> um, I, yeah, but no, I, I, no, I, I, I think you're right. I think it's something, um, it, it's one of those things It. it can, anger can sort of push you great distances, it can, it can fuel you in a, positive way for, for a certain amount of time but then it sort of goes a bit the fuel kind of curdles and goes a bit nasty yeah, yeah um and 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 then i guess you know if you're putting anger into your car you like i say you can hurt all along at great speed but then you'll slowly start to slow down and the car will start to conk out so i think Um, if if that's a terrible metaphor, but (laughs) I got it. um, I liked
3: it. it (laughs) (laughs) Um,
1: But I'm just saying that, that I guess, you know, to a certain extent that if you see ourselves as like that, then I think, yeah, it can propel you for a certain extent of time, but yeah, in the end, it's going to, it's going to be wasteful. So yeah. On a broader, just a broader question about gambling and and how, I guess, we see, like, I mean, football is a terrible one for Mm -hmm. having, like, gambling companies on their shirts and stuff. Do you you think there needs to be a bit more responsibility from sporting governing bodies and stuff to sort of make gambling less glamorous? um, And maybe there needs to be a bit more thought put into what football clubs in particular or, or, you know, and... um, I guess Formula One and all those kind of yeah. things um, do with regards to advertising gambling companies. Well, oh, sorry, I was going to say in
2: relation to cause you remember um, smoking used to be all over Formula One. Didn't yeah, of it? course. And yeah, then yeah. they've obviously now put on the packet they literally put, you know, the dangers it can cause and stuff. So there was obviously big regulations there, but I guess gambling is sort of quite a few years behind.
3: Yeah, um, it's really interesting. And obviously the. The government review is going on at the moment. The Gambling Act review and a white paper is going to be produced in the not-too-distant future. We have seen some changes, but it's taken too long for them to happen and and probably not enough. Certainly more needs to be done. I'm not anti-gambling. I recognise that a lot of people can do it as a form of entertainment, not have a problem with it, just like there's people that can drink alcohol and not be alcoholics and I use the analogy if I wanted to shut down the industry it'd be like an alcoholic trying to shut down every pub Um, but more needs to be done to to protect vulnerable people and I think historically as I articulate in the book and I was one of those historically the industry would actually take advantage of of vulnerable people and, and that can't continue it's not acceptable and there were certain things and practices that happened, like vip schemes that that just have to be a thing of the past and and can't continue there definitely needs to be more done around sponsorship and advertising i don't think there's anyone in the world that doesn't think there's too many gambling adverts it's, we've just reached saturation point it's everywhere you look some of it's quite predatory in its nature as well, which I don't like. Young people are exposed to it in, in ways that they just don't need to be. As you say, it's often glamorised and there's already been some announcements about using kind of celebrities to, to market gambling products. And and so I think we will see some changes and, and they're much needed. Um, do I think prohibition is, is the solution? Absolutely not. But does more need to be done? Yes. Um I think there will be some hopefully some positive changes around kind of regulation when it comes to affordability as well. Um and actually finding out more about where people's money's coming from because our people like me funding their gambling problem through payday loans and yeah. credit cards, etc nobody should be able to afford nobody should be able to gamble more money than they can afford to lose or indeed time yeah and so the more we can do to to put in place to protect people the better um do i think gambling addiction will continue to exist yeah i think anything that's addictive it will but actually we need to kind of reduce it um and so yeah i mean a long-winded answer is is stuff being done? Yes. Is enough being done? No. Um, But hopefully that will change. Ensuring people can get access to treatment is, is really important as well because that, that isn't the case at the moment. Um, And, and making sure that, yeah, if, if people are in a situation where they need support, they, they can get it. It is, is as important. Education plays an important part in that. So it's it's a world that is is kind of it's so ingrained in culture and society now we need to make sure we do a lot to protect people and whether that's treating it as a, a kind of public health issue as a, as a first port of call I, I I wouldn't see that as a bad thing at all
2: yeah mm. I, I guess if there's anyone listening who has heard your story and, and thank you so much for being so open about it and and it's maybe thinking Oh, I, I possibly see a bit of myself in there, a few traits. What What would you recommend they do, sort of, right? You know, right now.
3: Yeah, I think um, if you're somebody who who gambles, uh, you don't think you got a problem with it. One thing I would say is, is do everything you can to protect yourself. There are now things that you can put in place. Unfortunately, you have to put most of them in place yourself, but there are things right. that you can put in place on on your kind of online. Um, accounts using kind of account management tools like deposit limits, time limits, all these kind of things. And, and I would encourage anybody who gambles to do that just to protect themselves from that moment where you might have a big win or a big loss like I did. Um, and, and that's that's a really good way of kind of managing your gambling. If you're somebody who is worried about your relationship with it, you see yourself like me kind of trying to win money back you're in debt from gambling i think one of the most important things is is realize and respect the fact that gambling isn't the way out it's never it's never ever the solution you won't no amount of money will ever be enough the chances are you'll lose more so that's the point to act rather than to wait until things get even worse um and seek support um, there is intervention there talk to somebody it doesn't matter who you who you talk to tell somebody um, and there are a lot of organisations out there that, that can help you um, the National Problem Gambling Helpline is, is free it's confidential it's 24 hours a day um, there's some fantastic support services um, available online go to a Gambler's Anonymous meeting um, but actually do something about it there and then rather than waiting, um, for the problem to get worse. Um, and there is now blocking software. There's things like Gamban, Gamstop that you can sign up to online, um, that are self-exclusion tools, which prevent you from kind of having that temptation to do it. So they're kind of the, the things that I would recommend. But I think more than anything, um is is tell somebody um talk to somebody about it because actually it's not easy to do but as soon as you do it that's the only way you can you can stop because other people can try and make you stop but actually it's only you that that can really do it and, and you have to be committed to it um I speak to plenty of people that say oh I've i am in this situation and I want to stop. And my first question is, well, do you really want to stop? Because if you, if you do and you're fully committed to it, it's possible, but unless you are, you won't be able to.
2: Yeah.
1: Well, thank you. Yeah, no, thank you. Honestly, we really, we appreciate your time and your honesty and yeah, I recommend the book to anybody and I'm sure it will resonate with an awful lot of people. Um, like i say i think you know I saw a lot of traits in there from my from my dad as well, so it did resonate with me um not being a gambler myself, but having lived with gamblers um certainly you know and I think it's it's a very powerful story and um yeah, thank you so much for sharing it with us today as well so i really appreciate your time and yeah thank you patrick really,
3: no problem it's really a,
1: lovely to talk to you
3: it's a pleasure thanks for having me on and uh, the podcast is awesome so uh oh, thanks. Yeah, thanks. i'll keep listening thanks um, you yeah great to chat to you
2: we'll, we'll put a link to your book as well in our in our show notes awesome thanks, patrick you're a legend Cheers, guys. thanks for coming on mate
3: thanks so much for having me
2: to say, well, how's that? I thought actually it's not. I try to do a cricket pun; it's not appropriate. Um, <laughs> Patrick Foster, what a top man! Maybe it was. Maybe Patrick would like that. Well, how's that? Nah, general, you know it didn't work. Patrick Foster, not out. Not. <laughs> I told you I don't know much about cricket. I learned a lot in the first twenty minutes of this episode when Patrick was actually breaking down the academy steps and the levels of cricket. I learned a lot today, so I appreciate that. But I also, I just, I just want to say a big thanks to Patrick because, as I said at the top these are hard subjects to delve into. Um, and I'm sure it brings up memories and feelings and he has to do it a lot for his job. Um, but it's making a huge difference by doing that. And I think it did today on this episode as well. So I really, really appreciate him coming on and telling us the story as honestly as, as he did. Um, and I hope that if there's anyone listening that that is going through similar issues, that it, that it is a help in some way. Um, and I do hope as well, and I'm sure it will be that the work he's doing now will hope change the industry. Um, and. Uh, I mean, you made a good point about football at the moment. Football does have a real problem with gambling, advertising. Um, But hopefully it sounds like the wheels are in motion to change that. And Patrick is clearly a part of that.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it was a fascinating... Um, episode and um, you know like, like you said thank you to Patrick for being so candid with us and uh, yeah I think there are you know we obviously we talked about his personal experiences but then we sort of talked about the more broader issues of gambling um, particularly around ga- online gambling which is uh, yeah. I guess not a new phenomenon but as is, is newer I mean like I said in the podcast I remember standing outside the betting shop with my nan going in and doing uh, doing the dogs and the pools I mean her and my dad were, were huge gamblers and uh yeah, so it was a thing that you went to, to the shop to do it, but obviously you can do it from the comfort of your sofa now or if you're in the loo or um, on yeah. a train or wherever you might be in the garden. Um, you can do it wherever because we've got these, you know, we've got these portable devices that um, I guess we are equally addicted to. and We didn't really get into any of that stuff, you know, the fact yeah. that we are, as our society is now sort of naturally addicted to stuff, uh, yeah. whether it be social media or our phones or, you know, whatever it might be. Um addiction is kind of there without us kind of possibly sort of being aware of it to a certain extent. But yeah, but then with, with the, you know, online gambling as well, sort of exacerbated by the fact that we have got these devices and we can be doing it 24 seven, um, which is very scary. Uh, so yeah, so obviously, yeah, it was great to hear Patrick's thoughts on that as well. I think as well, though, like the message from him that, you know, you can get help.
2: Things can get better. I think is a really powerful, and reassuring one and i guess one to remember if you are someone that thinks you might have an addiction problem be it gambling or or as you say there are other areas in life as well and i think maybe society is making a lot of us more just addictive you can talk to people uh, yes. and that is a big first step and i think you know his is a real inspirational story of recovery and getting his life back on track after some you know really really horrible horrible moments um but I think as well that, that that is inspiring you can make a change you can you know you can sort things out it will be okay um and you can talk to people so I guess that's one thing to take away and try and remember as well um that if you are finding things difficult uh, reaching out really does and we we said that before on the podcast didn't we we're, we're, with I guess other areas of life but certainly from what Patrick's saying about gambling um
1: talking to someone and reaching out uh will will we'll make a change yeah and it's not always easy to do that and sometimes you have to be at your lowest ebb to finally make that um step but uh, I think yeah again we 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 always talk about the the power of connection and uh, yeah. and and talking you know it's so you know, and and having this conversation today with Patrick was uh was really amazing you know because you know you every time you have these kind of conversations you learn a little bit about yourself through yeah. through other people's stories and experiences Absolutely.
2: Well, I mean, we can't thank Patrick enough for coming on. Mm. Really, really interesting and inspirational chat. And again, his book, Might Buy, Um, the link is in the pod notes now. Do buy it. It's a fantastic book. And uh, you will not be disappointed. Um, But that's it. That's the end of this week's episode, Joe. It is. Another one done. We're back. We're back now. We're back now with a regular... So next week, another regular episode. Uh, We're back on track and uh, ready to crack on Crack on,
1: crack on, mate. Crack on. <laughs> I went a bit Australian there for a second, yeah. Crack on, mate. Um, um yeah, yeah, where does that derive from then? Crack on, I don't know. Been I have to uh, we'll have to contact Susie Dent and find out.
2: Speaking of Australian,
1: it's <laughs> a terrible thing, it's not really. But uh, I did ask uh,
2: for our patron only mm. bit of the pod, we do obviously we do extra content each week. I did ask Patrick about. Sledging in cricket, his 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 worst sledging moment. Of, and I think it is a bit of an Australian trend in cricket, or maybe it comes from there, but it's basically sort of they 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 tease each other. I mean it's heavy, t- it's basically abuse. Yeah, so yeah. Abuse. um and his is a great, it's a really good one. So if you yeah, if you want to hear that, do sign up to our patron, patreon.com slash blank podcast, P A T R, E O N dot com slash blank podcast, because that's a
1: that's a good little story to end with, isn't it? It was, yes. It was good, yeah. And um, obviously, Patrick was very good-natured about it, which is obviously yeah. like a yeah difficult moment in, in his playing yeah. career. So, yeah, that was really nice of him to do that. Good stuff. And we love our patrons, of course. So oh,
2: thank yeah. you to all of our patrons it's that top. have signed up. I mean, you don't just get extra content. You get the pod 24 hours early, advert-free, and you get our eternal love. I mean, what more can you want? I don't know. I mean, just
1: for that alone, it's worth the
2: five dollars a month five dollars a month exactly anyway mate right let's let's go and we'll be back next week with another episode but until Mm. then i hope you have a good week bud you too ma'am. thank you same to our listeners of course and we'll see you next week on the blank podcast goodbye
0: media podcast.